This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Hi, everybody. Welcome for welcome to this talk. Thank you for coming. Boy, sure, you guys have better things to do, but okay, okay. Um, so my, my, this, is, uh, this is my subject. Does the Constitution mean what it says? And, I mean, you know, obviously, on, obviously, on some level, the answer is yes. We have a Senate with two senators from every state. It's hard to explain why we have that. We're not for the Constitution. The Constitution tells us the president has to be 35 years old. He tells us when the president's term ends, pretty important thing to be told. Um, and in all of those ways, we treat the Constitution as meaning exactly what it says. The, the idea for this talk was prompted actually by an exchange in an argument before the Supreme Court recently, in the last few weeks. The, the argument was in this case about the president's power to make so-called recess appointments. Uh, recess appointments are appointments that the president can make without confirmation by the Senate. Uh, and he can make them... Roughly speaking, the idea is when the Senate's not in session, he can make a recess appointment. The, the issue was about exactly what, what does it mean for the Senate not to be in session, um, and the issue is a little more complicated than that. But basically, the way the, the litigation worked out, the uh, case came to the Supreme Court in a posture in which the uh, lower court, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, had said that something that basically everybody had, or most people had assumed, was within the president's power, wasn't, because uh, if you look at the words of the Constitution, they say the president can't make appointments in certain circumstances. It had been assumed in one case for 100 years, another case for almost 200 years, assumed by most people the president could make appointments in those circumstances. But if you read the words of the Constitution, just naturally, probably, they are inconsistent with this very well-established practice. Um, and in the course of the oral argument, one of the justices asked the Solicitor General, who was defending the President's appointment, said to the Solicitor General, well, look, if the words of the Constitution say one thing, but we have established practices that are inconsistent with that, what, what governs? And the question was really asked as a rhetorical question. The question was asked to say, look, the words of the Constitution govern, right? I mean, it's the Constitution. The Solicitor General at first hedged. He eventually came back and gave an answer, but his first response was to say, well, things aren't that clear, the words aren't that clear, because he didn't want to be in the position of saying, no, sometimes, you, sometimes the words don't mean what they say. So that's what got me started, to be thinking about instances in which the words of the Constitution seem not to mean what they say. Uh, and, and more generally, to sort of talk about ways in which we have moved away from the sort of clear, natural, obvious meaning of the Constitution. You might think, well, it's a bad thing if we've done that. I mean, we shouldn't move away from the obvious meaning of the Constitution. If the Constitution says something, we should comply with it. But as, as, I, as some of, at least some of the examples I'll show you, I think, reveal, um, in many of these cases, it would actually be unthinkable to go with what the Constitution seems plainly to say. Not only have we kind of drifted away from it, but it would be uh, uh, really unacceptable to follow what the words interpreted most naturally seem to say. That's, that's what I'm going to try to show you. Now, let me sort of qualify in a couple of ways. Um, uh, I don't mean to suggest that the people who wrote the Constitution is, were, were being foolish or just kind of made dumb mistakes. I don't mean to suggest that 
um, at all. Uh, uh, on the contrary, in a lot of these instances, you can understand pretty clearly what the logic was behind the words as they were written. They were not written inadvertently or carelessly. They were written with a certain view in mind. Um, uh, uh, and also, the, the point of this isn't that they are kind of slip-ups, that they are kind of careless phrasings or careless things in the Constitution. And, you know, gee whiz, you know, look at that. It, if, you, if, you, if you really took that literally, it would mean that giraffes could vote or something like that. Um, it's not like that. Uh, now, there are things like that in, in the Constitution. I'll actually uh, give you an example of, uh, of one of them, um, which is this. Uh, um, this is a... The clauses in Article 2 of the Constitution that establish the qualifications to be president, you have to be a, here we go, a natural-born citizen, um, which, uh, you know, that could mean lots of different things. It could mean that, that you, uh, Julius Caesar and Macduff would both be disqualified from being president because they were untimely ripped from their mother's wombs, in Macduff's words, or C-sections. Uh, uh, if you're born by C-section, you couldn't be president. But no one thinks it means that. Everyone thinks natural-born citizen means that you were a citizen by virtue of birth, that you were a citizen at birth as opposed to being naturalized. Now, that itself is probably uh, indefensible. There's no real reason today to disqualify people who are naturalized citizens. But, but there it is in the Constitution, and we do follow that. That's not really what I want to draw your attention to. What I want to draw your attention to is that comma between the Constitution and shall. Okay? Now, you see what they're getting at. They want to say... Either you have to be a natural-born citizen, or you have to be a citizen. Oh, actually, I got the wrong comma. It's that comma between states and that. Or you have to be a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. Okay, you know, either you have to be natural-born, or you know, for this current generation, you have to have been a citizen of the United States when the Constitution was adopted, because a lot of those guys were born in the, in England, um, or some of them were born in England, um, uh, or or elsewhere, not in uh, the United States, which didn't exist. Uh, but the problem is they put in, they put in uh, that comma, too. Um, so what that uh, um, comma seems to, seems to do with this, uh, with this uh, phrasing is uh, something like this. You have to be a natural-born citizen or citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution. Um, that means unless you were either a natural-born citizen at the time of the adoption of the Constitution or a citizen of the United States at the time of the, the adoption of the Constitution, you can't be president, right? Am I right or am I right? That's what it says, right? <laughs> no person except a natural-born citizen. Then you got two commas around there, two commas. We all know that makes something a parenthetical phrase, uh, right? Um, uh, either a citizen of the United States, either a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. So unless you were a citizen when the Constitution was adopted, you can't be president. <coughs> And that means, uh, forget it, everybody post Zachary Taylor. Um, uh, um, because he was the last president who was born, uh, who was a citizen at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. Okay, so there's actually a law review article about this. This isn't my idea. Uh, I, I, has, I would love to take credit for it, actually. But, but, uh, but I can, an article in 1995 by uh, Jack Balk and Sandy Levinson and Jordan Steiker that made this point, um, and actually went into the kind of history of the use of commas in the founding period to prove that, um, that they were right. But it's obviously a joke. That, that's not what I'm doing, okay? It's just kind of, kind of couldn't resist. Um, uh, so let's, let's not do that. Um, what, what I really want to do is something more interesting. Um, uh, as I said, I think in a lot of these instances, there was a real 
logic, a real kind of intellectual coherence to these provisions of the Constitution, and what the unacceptability today of following them tells us is just how different a world it was when these provisions were written. Uh, and that's the interesting thing, that it reveals to us that the world today doesn't look like the world of the 18th and 19th centuries, which was when most of the important provisions of our Constitution uh, were adopted. And the difference in the worlds is what shows up in these parts of the Constitution that we wouldn't think of following today. Now, one more qualification. A lot of what I'm going to say, I think, will seem, and in some sense will be, sort of one-sided and polemical. And people who people on sort of a, who approach these issues in a different way might say, well, you've kind of left out a whole half of the story. I mean, there are ways of interpreting the Constitution that don't produce the anomalous and unacceptable results that you've identified, they would say to me. And they're right. There are ways of interpreting the Constitution. In every one of these instances, there are ways of interpreting the Constitution that get around the problems um, that, I, that, that I'm going to try to show you. Um, you, you can find ways of making the text consistent with principles that we accept today. Um, but that's the thing. You're finding a way. You're getting around it. Um, uh, you're, you're finding an interpretation that will uh, satisfy us today, that we will find acceptable today. And the question really is, why are we doing that? Why are we sort of stretching and pushing and interpreting in order to reach a certain result when the words as naturally read lead to a different result. Uh, we do it, and we should do it, but you have to get at why we're doing it. And when you figure out why we're doing it, you realize that that's, that is what the process of constitutional law and constitutional interpretation consists of. Not reading the words of the text, but whatever it is that causes us to take certain words and say, oh yeah, you can't take that literally, but you know, if you, if you look at it this way and look at it next to this provision, you'll see that it all makes sense. But why are we doing that? Something else is going on here. Something else is going on here besides just treating the words as if they mean what they say. And it's that something else that is key to American constitutionalism. But I, I think that something else is a combination of following precedent and tradition and just making judgments about what's right. That's a whole different story. But the point I really want to make is something else is going on beyond simply following the words. And to say, but you don't have to interpret the words that way, that is right. But the question is, why don't we? And we need an answer to that, uh, to that question. So as I say, this is going to seem one-sided and not fully acknowledging the way in which these words can be reconciled with things we think are acceptable. I think that is right. But why do you have to reconcile them? You ought to get to the bottom of that question. Why are we not just following, taking the words at face value in order to understand uh, how the Constitution works in American life? Um, so, okay, so let's, uh, let's do that. And let's skip over the the Zachary Taylor, et cetera, uh, problem. So here you go. Um, first Amendment, great guarantee of freedom of speech in the United States, right? Um, what's the first word? First word is Congress. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Um, president, not there. The federal courts, not there. Does that mean that the president can say, well, I'm going to use the discretion I have in enforcing the criminal laws to enforce them against my opponents? Um, does that mean the president, who is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, uh, can say, you know, if there's some mission that presents a great risk of uh, life to the, uh, to the people who are carrying it out, I want that mission to be carried out by Republicans. Um, right? The president said, of course the president can't say that, but why not? It's Congress. 
oh, when they said Congress, they must have meant the federal government. Really? They did just draft the Constitution, and they did just talk about Congress in Article I, the President in Article II, and the courts in Article III. You would think if they wanted to say something different from Congress, they would have been able to say something different from uh, Congress, right? Right? Uh, they would have been able to say, for example, uh, people have a right to free speech, the way they said in the Fourth Amendment, people have a right to be secure um, in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. They might have said no person shall have his free speech taken away from him, or no person shall be subject to a violation of his free speech rights, or no person shall be uh, compelled to practice, uh, to, to speak in a way he doesn't want to speak, um, or to refuse to speak in a way he wants to speak. Or no person shall be deprived of the freedom of speech. They say all those things in the Fifth Amendment. Or they said people shall enjoy the right to freedom of speech. Or they should have said violations of freedom of speech shall not be required. Um, uh, they could have said all those things. They say them in the next amendments, all of which are phrased in a way that would have avoided this problem. None of those amendments says Congress may, may not. Uh, they all give rights to the people. So why didn't they give rights to people in the First Amendment? They just said uh, Congress. Take it for all it's worth. The president can violate people's free speech rights. Um, now, their answers, their answers to this. I mean, it's not like no one has ever noticed this before. It does get universally ignored. Um, well, not quite universally, because there are people who have noticed this. And the basic thing people will say, well, say one of, they'll say a couple of things. They'll say, well, look, um, uh, yeah, the, con uh, the president um, can't do things Congress doesn't authorize him to do. The president can only act pursuant to congressional authorization. Now, there's a problem with that, which is there are some things the president can do without congressional authorization, like being commander-in-chief of the armed forces, which is a power the Constitution gives the president himself. Um, uh, so that's one problem. The other problem is if Congress authorizes the president, as, as it routinely does, to enforce the criminal laws exercising his discretion about which laws he's going to enforce, which is a common understanding, universal understanding of the criminal laws. The president doesn't have to enforce all criminal laws. He can exercise um, uh, his discretion. The president is not going outside the authority granted him by Congress if he exercises that discretion, and nothing in the First Amendment prevents him from exercising it on the basis of people's speech. Or I should say, since the rest of the First Amendment talks about religion, on the basis of people's religion um, uh, either. Um, so there's a problem. Now, we, you know, we sort of interpret our way around it in the way I just said. Well, it has to be action pursuant to congressional authorization, or we just sort of ignore it and treat Congress as if they meant the federal government. But, you know, if you're just reading the text uh, straightforwardly, it, it's hard to make the case that the First Amendment, the word Congress in the First Amendment means the federal government when they carefully distinguish between the branches of the federal government in the body of the Constitution itself. And it's hard to say that the text just means to say people shall have a right to free speech when so many other amendments do talk in those terms, but this one, um, uh, this one uh, doesn't. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a problem. Um, uh, does it mean that, uh, that uh, seriously the president could do these things or that the courts could hold you in contempt of court for engaging in political speech? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that. Um, but why doesn't it mean that? Well, it doesn't mean that because that's not the way our system has evolved and that's not a good system. But those are the reasons, not because we're taking our orders from the Constitution. Okay, the Establishment Clause. Um, notice that the Establishment Clause is the clause that is cited to forbid literally religious establishments, official government-sponsored churches supported by tax revenues of the kind they have in other countries, including the United Kingdom, um, and more generally to forbid uh, forms of government aid to religion and the question about what kinds of aid or religion are, 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 what kinds of aid to religion are okay and what kinds are not is much litigated, very hard question to get a, a handle on. Um, 
Um, but it is interpreted to mean the government may not establish religions, may not give a certain kind of aid to religion. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say uh, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion. Now, I sort of did this stuff in the first line because we all know Congress doesn't mean Congress. It means the, first, the federal government because, 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 because. Um, uh, um, uh, but okay, I grant you that. It means the federal government. Now look at it. The federal government shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Why phrase that way? Well, it's pretty clear why it was phrased that way. It was phrased that way because the time the First Amendment was adopted, there were states that had established religions, that had official state religions in the state. Uh, Congregationalism was established in Massachusetts as a state religion supported by tax revenues. And what the First Amendment was designed to do was to prevent the federal government, Congress, from disestablishing those churches. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment, meaning Congress cannot establish a federal church, and Congress cannot disestablish state churches. Very clear that's what they're up to, and that's why the, um, the clause is phrased the way it is. Congress is not to interfere with states' decisions about establishment, one way or the other. Um, now, if you take Congress to mean the federal government, that should mean the federal government cannot interfere with states' decisions about establishing churches. And that means if a state wants to establish a church, if a state, state of Illinois wants to say such and such a religion is the official state religion of Illinois, the governor of Illinois is the head of the church in Illinois, boy, imagine that, and, um, uh, and your tax revenues are going to go to support that church, there's nothing the federal government, the federal government is barred from doing anything about that. Why upside down? Because it's been interpreted in exactly the opposite way, that if Illinois tried to do that, the Supreme Court would strike it down in a second. The Supreme Court's not Congress, but we passed that hurdle uh, already. Uh, we're talking about the federal government. And the Establishment Clause has essentially been interpreted in this respect, Establishment Clause designed to keep the federal government out of state decisions about establishments, has over time come to mean in this respect the opposite. The federal government can tell states, no, you may not aid religion um, in that way. Um, a, a, a complicated process, the steps of the evolution can be quite nicely traced out, that establishments died out in about the 1820s. After about that point, states didn't have any more established churches. By the time the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War, established churches were history. The 14th Amendment is taken to have applied this provision to the states. Because it's kind of, we've gotten, kind of got to the point where we don't have established churches anymore, the Establishment Clause has been re reinterpreted to forbid establishments. But that's the process, not just the words, not just the words. Um, uh, you can't get there from the words. Um, uh, you've got to look at more than that. Okay, what about this? Um, I really want to sort of focus not on commas, but on things that are absolutely central to the Constitution as we understand it in the United States today. So let's take maybe the single most central thing of the last century, which is the unconstitutionality of racial segregation of the kind that was practiced in certain parts of the country up until the middle of the 20th century. Uh, the big case, of course, Brown against Board of Education that held that segregated schooling uh, was unconstitutional. Um, the basis of that holding was the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. There it is. No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Equal protection of the laws. The odd thing is a lot of people, when they talk about this clause, they talk about the constitutional guarantee of equality. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say every state shall treat people equally. It doesn't say that. Look at it. Look at it. Do I have to, do I have to, do I have to get out my laser pointer? Do I have to do that? Uh, equal protection. It talks about equal protection. Um, where do you get equality in education from that? Is education a form of protection? And even if you wanted to say, well, yeah, I can kind of get there. I mean, you get a good education. It protects you from a lot of the bad things that can happen in life. I can, 
I can get there, and maybe you can. I mean, that's, you know, okay, I see that. But think about the other aspects of Jim Crow segregation in the South that the Supreme Court also said were unconstitutional. You can't segregate public parks. You can't segregate public swimming pools. You can't segregate public buildings. You can't segregate public restrooms. Um, uh, if for that matter, if you had some purely ceremonial function, the ceremonial town marshal who leads the town parade on, uh, on April Fool's Day, um, uh, you couldn't confine that. Obviously, you couldn't confine that to white people. Obviously. Is that about protection? In what sense exactly is that about protection? Um, so what we've done is kind of what I just said we did about education, which is to say, well, you know, and the, the, the equal is really the word there, and we'll just kind of skim over protection, or we'll kind of say, well, all these things sort of involve protection. I mean, they are all kind of protecting you against status as a second-class citizen or something like that. And you can do that, and that's fine, and, and it's a great thing that we did that. Make no mistake about that. But you have a hard time getting there from the words. Um, now, what was going on um, with these words? Why is, it, why is it phrased like that? Here is an account. I, I, don't, I don't know enough about history to tell you this is right, and there's a dispute about it, in fact. Um, but here's one account of what the people who drafted the 14th Amendment were, that part of the 14th Amendment were doing. Uh, equal protection really did mean protection. It meant equal protection of the criminal and tort laws. And you could not deny people that on the basis of their race. And that didn't extend to things like education and public transportation and public facilities. Uh, the Equal Protection Clause did not apply that. It really meant protection of your person and property. Um, but there was another provision, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, that was intended to make sure everybody would have equal privileges and immunities. Um, uh, and the question then, of course, is what counts as a privilege or uh, immunity? Um, and th there was a list. They had a list. It usually involved, roughly speaking, things like the right to enter into contracts, the right to give testimony in court, the right to hold property, things like that. Um, uh, did not, there's no uh, evidence that, there's very little evidence, hardly any evidence that anyone thought it involved education. Certainly to say that your right to go to a public park or a public golf course or a public swimming pool is a privilege or immunity of citizenship is stretching things pretty far. Uh, it was not what was originally understood. But that's how they thought about things. Um, they thought that there was a, um, uh, that the idea was to have, um, the idea was that there would be equality in certain areas, equality with respect to certain things, certain privileges or immunities that are sort of central to citizenship. We want equality there. We want equality and protection of the criminal laws and tort laws. In other ways, if you want to treat people of certain racial groups as inferior, you could do it. That was their vision. Um, Equality in certain core areas, but equality across the board, no, the races aren't equal. Um, that was the vision. And, you know, they just saw the world differently. It's not that they were slipping up or incoherent or being silly. They just had a different view about the world. Um, and, you know, things have changed for the better. And that's why the language doesn't line up with, with what we believe today. And, in fact, when people talk about the Equal Protection Clause, uh, they routinely gloss right over uh, that word. And you know what? That's fine with me. Um, uh, but maybe it shouldn't be fine with, or uh, people, I wouldn't say it shouldn't be fine with, uh, people who emphasize uh, you have to follow the words of the Constitution, maybe they have, as they say, a little splaining to do. Okay. Um, uh, what's next? Um, yeah, the right to vote. Um, oh, no, 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 wait, I've, I've skipped too far. I've gotten, there's, there's much more here, much more here. Uh, this one, this is, a, this is another, another old favorite. Um, see that word? State. 
Uh, what about the federal government? The federal government is not a state. Does that mean the federal government can discriminate on the basis of race? That's the clause that forbids racial discrimination. Um, the federal government can do that. There's no equal protection clause for the federal government. Sun exista pa. Um, uh, uh, as it happens, a case involving discrimination in the District of Columbia, run, forgive me if you're taking Conlo 3 and all this stuff by now, the District of Columbia, the schools of which are run by the federal government, came up at the same time as Brown against Board of Education, which involves state schools, schools run by states. Um, and the Supreme Court decided Brown against Board of Education. And then in the case involving the District of Columbia, it wrote a separate opinion, cases called Bowling and Sharp, in which the Supreme Court said, look, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but only a little, um, look, we just said segregation of public schools in the states is unconstitutional. It would be unthinkable to allow segregation in the schools of the nation's capital. Um, and they then went on to say uh, segregation in the schools of the nation's capital violates the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment of the, of the Constitution. Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, first of all, it doesn't say anything about equality. It says uh, due process of law. Um, I got it back there someplace. Yeah, there it is. Um, uh, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. They said, well, there's a guarantee of equality in there. Uh, you know, maybe. I don't quite see it myself, but I guess it's got to be there. Um, uh, and, of course, the people who wrote that clause, they were really advocates of racial equality since the clause was written in 1791 at a time when half the country was slaveholding. Um, uh, but, look, it is unthinkable to allow segregation in the schools of the nation's capital when you outlawed it in the states, and we're going to find something in the Constitution that allows us to say that. And, you know, due process is a loose enough notion so that we can say it. That's the way these things work. Um, uh, um, uh, okay, so that's Bowling and Sharp and um, federal government discriminating. Voting. Uh, it's a little complicated, but, but, uh, but bear with me, because it's uh, a little complicated, a little less dramatic, but actually kind of a clear case of something that's just been interpolated into the Constitution. Um, the Constitution itself actually doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't give, uh, it says very little about the right to vote. Um, uh, and by and large, rights to vote come, came in the original Constitution, came from the states. Over time, various constitutional amendments were adopted to give different groups the right to vote, including that one, the 15th Amendment, which gave the right to vote, uh, said the right to vote could not be denied on the basis of race. The 19th Amendment said the right to vote could not be denied on the basis of sex. And the right to vote was subsequently extended also to 18-year-olds. Um, uh, but here is the thing. It is actually very clear that the 14th Amendment, with its Equal Protection Clause, does not give people a right to vote, um, taken in its most natural reading. Um, it does not give people um, uh, a right to vote. Um, uh, uh, here's why I say that. The 14th Amendment, adopted after the Civil War, clearly had something to do with race discrimination. The main objective, no dispute about this. Whatever else it did, the main objective was to get rid of race discrimination in certain ways, as I said, with respect to privileges and immunities and with respect to protection. Was it designed to get rid of race discrimination with respect to voting? No, it was not. How do we know that? We know that because of this, because they had to amend the Constitution again a few years later um, uh, to get rid of race discrimination in voting. They wouldn't have had to do that if the 14th Amendment already got rid of race discrimination um, in voting. You want more evidence? Here is the 
deservedly obscure, well, maybe not deservedly, parts of it deservedly obscure, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. And what it does is to say, if states do deprive the people, some people, of the right to vote, which people would those be? Well, those would be men, because you could deprive women of the right to vote. I mean, come on. Um, uh, if you deprive men over the age of 21 who are citizens of the right to vote, here's what's happened. Your representation in Congress will be cut back proportionally. So what they're saying is, we're not forbidding you from doing it. We're just saying if you do it, if you deprive people of the right to vote, they're speaking about African Americans here, um, effectively. You deprive African Americans of the right to vote, we're going to cut back your representation in Congress. It's never been enforced. Um, and when the 15th Amendment came along, at least as far as African Americans were concerned, uh, uh, this would no longer be applicable because you couldn't deprive them of the right to vote um, at all. Supposedly, they were effectively deprived of the right to vote until... Uh, in many areas until well into the 20th century, but that's a different, a different story. So you've got this amendment, the 14th Amendment, as its language about equality, its language of privileges, privileges and immunities. If you, just, if you read the text, it is really quite clear it does not say, uh, it does not limit a state's power to deny people the right to vote. Because if it did, we wouldn't have needed the 15th Amendment, and if it didn't, it wouldn't say, here's what happens if you do deny it. It would have said you can't deny it. Okay? So, uh, could a state, consistent with the Constitution as it's written, deny gays the right to vote? Sure. There's no amendment that says you can't discriminate in voting on the basis of sexual orientation as there is for race, sex, and over the age of 18. Um, if you're just reading the document, you say, well, let's see. 14th Amendment doesn't say you can't discriminate against people in voting. 15th Amendment uh, says, well, you can't on the basis of race, can't on the basis of sex, can't on the basis of being under the age of 18. I guess the other things are fair game. Um, uh, uh, you're an Italian-American? I don't think that's race. Uh, um, you're rich? That's not race either. You're not voting. You're poor? You're not voting. There were property qualifications in voting at the time the Constitution was drafted. Um, nothing in the Constitution ever said you can't limit the vote to people with property. One person, one vote? Are you kidding me? Where does that come from? Where does that come from exactly? Um, if you read Supreme Court opinions, they say, they'll say it comes from the Equal Protection Clause. But... Um, in fact, uh, the, well, you remember the Equal Protection Clause. There it is. Um, uh, but in fact, that doesn't have anything to do with voting, and we know that because of the other things I've mentioned. Um, now, the law has gotten way, way beyond this, and, you know, there are various ways you can explain around it. There are other clauses in the Constitution that you might use to, to invoke to say there's a right to vote. But if you're just reading the document the way you read a legal document, um, um, you have a problem explaining why massive discrimination in voting is not acceptable. Um, all right, if you had enough, you want some more? How about this one? Uh, there's the Fourth Amendment. Right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Okay, the NSA, suppose, suppose the NSA were to listen to my cell phone conversations, which, by the way, it doesn't, but supposing it did. Um, let's see, listening to my cell phone conversation, is that a search or seizure of my person? Well, my cell phone is on my person, so I guess if they grab my cell phone, yes. But if they're just listening to the electromagnetic uh, transmissions in the air, no, that's not a seizure of my person. Uh, my house? No, it's not my house. My papers? No, certainly not my papers. The whole thing, a phone call is exactly not a paper. Uh, my effects, my personal effects, my conversations don't include my effects. So where does my right not to have the government listened to my phone call, phone conversations come from. Uh, there's the relevant amendment. You find it in there anywhere? I can't find it. I'm looking. I'm looking. I can't find it. 
Um, when this issue was first litigated, it was litigated not about cell phones, but about, and again, if you're in criminal procedure, you know all about this from the United States against cats. Uh, it was litigated about um, uh, landline phones, and p- particularly a, a, a phone booth, um, because that's not in anyone's house. And the dispute on the court, it was a, 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 an interesting dispute on the court, where the majority said, no, listen, listen, listening into someone's phone calls is like searching their houses or their effects or their papers. I mean, it's not literally their papers, but it's like their papers. The dissent by Justice Black said, no, it's not. It's like eavesdropping. You're just listening into a conversation. And eavesdropping was an accepted thing to do at the time of the framing and is not ruled out by the Fourth Amendment. That whether you're listening in to someone's sound waves or listening into someone's electromagnetic waves, no difference. Um, uh, now, we can argue about that. We can say, no, you know, we rely on electromagnetic communication of various kinds and ways that we don't rely on conversations. We expect them not to be overheard. There's an expectation that if you talk on the phone, it's private. If you're talking in public in a place where people can hear you, it's not. All of that is true, and it's good the law developed this way. And as I said, it is unthinkable that we would have no protection for phone conversations. But, you know, persons, houses, papers, and effects. Um, uh, you won't find phone conversations in there. Okay, I'll give you one more, because I think maybe you get the drift at this point. Um, there you go. This isn't quite, it's quite locked down in the way the others are, but it's, it's so wild that I can't resist. Um, uh, there you go. There is uh, the provision of the Constitution that deals with Congress's power to create money. And what it says is it may coin money, regulate the value thereof, and regulate the value of foreign coin. Um, and then in the next clause... It mentions securities as well as coin. One way to read that, and in a way, in fact, the Supreme Court did at one point read it, is to say Congress can't create paper money. Coin, what does coin mean to you? Coin is coins, it's metal. Uh, I don't know why in the, when they decided this in uh, 1868 they weren't thinking of Bitcoin, but they weren't, <laughs> um, an oversight. Uh, um, uh, uh, and there's a serious argument, and also and what the reason why I think this is a legitimate example, even though the text is not 100% clear that paper money is ruled out, it's really not, it's, you know, it's, it's a reasonable argument you could make on the, on the basis of the text alone. There is lots of talk in the framing debates about the evils of paper money, and a, and a decent basis for saying, no, no, they meant, they meant coin, they meant it had to be metal. Uh, they didn't want Congress creating paper money. It is, it is a more complicated story than just that. Um, but there is at least, on the basis of the text, a plausible argument that paper money is unconstitutional. There are arguments to the opposite effect, and as I said, this is a little bit more tenuous than the other things I've been saying. But there's a problem here, since the power is coining money, and the ordinary reading of coin, if you just sort of dropped into the United States from planet, you know, planet whatever, um, uh, at this point, and you somehow acquired an intimate familiarity with the English language, and you read that, uh, 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 coining money is not the same thing as creating paper money. Um, uh, and that is a sort of notorious, uh, actually, example of something that, um, that would be, that lead to results that are obviously uh, um, uh, would, would, you know, uh, unacceptable and plunge the economy into chaos. I know some people are fans of the gold standard, but, I mean, come on. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, um, but uh, but on a, 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 probably the more plausible reading of the Constitution, Congress has no business creating paper money. And as I said, this is, this is a, a point I want to make less emphatically than some of the others about the text. Okay, so what, what are we to make of all this? Are we to think less of the Constitution? No, absolutely not. It is a, it is a sort of uh, amazing achievement 
to draft a document that um, has done as well as our Constitution has done. It is certainly not done perfectly. There are examples I've given you and some others, and then there is the problem of the Civil War, which is a, you know, I mean, there's no more way, catastrophic way a Constitution can fail than that. Having said that, there are lots of things that have survived, and also it took a particular kind of genius to draft these things in a way that allowed us to interpret our way out of it. I mean, had the 14th Amendment not been phrased in the way I described, but had it said something like what they probably thought, which is, notwithstanding anything we've just said, racial segregation is okay. That's probably what they thought. Had they said that, we would have a much tougher time getting to where we've gotten. And there are lots of examples of that, uh, of things that they probably believed. They didn't write it down. Um, they left things a little vague. And as a result, we've been able to work with the text and make progress. Um, and in those respects, uh, the Constitution is a remarkable uh, uh, document. It is really asking too much, asking way too much, to think you could go back to this essentially unamendable, nearly unamendable text drafted 150 or 220 years ago, uh, go back to it and find a recipe for modern life. That is asking way too much. And if, if you're pretending you're doing that, then you're pretending. Uh, that's not really what you're doing. You're finding your answers somewhere other than the text. Um, and it does not dishonor the text to do that. What it does, far from dishonoring the text, I think is to honor and celebrate and also enjoin us to be properly humble about the human capacity to make progress. So, thanks. Questions? Time for questions. Sir. Well, thank you for this fascinating and illuminating talk, Professor Strauss. This really um, shows both the, you know, the strength and the limitations of the Constitution from the vantage point of the, the modern day. And I guess I was wondering if you envision any further sort of reasonable reforms going forward that kind of take us away from these rigid constitutional formulas. Like notably, m many commentators increasingly realize the unworkability of the political order with the kind of mixed presidential parliamentary system that exists. And there are any number of ways one could go, but for instance, if one wanted to reduce the power of the Senate to something like the House of Lords in the United Kingdom, or um, but to take another potential reform, outlaw the kind of gerrymandering that we see in districts in the House of Representatives, do you think any kind of reasonable composition of the courts could produce those results going forward? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, let me answer that in two ways. Uh, I, I do think we have, I think these examples show that we have established ways of changing the Constitution in order to adapt it to problems that weren't envisioned or to adapt it to ways in which we think about the world differently. And we figured out how to do that in a lot of instances, like the ones I've, I've described. So that, that mechanism exists. And we call it constitutional interpretation, um, but it's more, it's more than, as I said, more than just looking at the words of the, the text. Now, as for these, um, these sorts of, of things you mentioned, there's a, this is a little bit off the track, although it's, it's connected. There is another thing that goes on in our system, which is norms and rules of practice that grow up that 
they're not really something someone would say is in the Constitution, even in the sense of it's part of constitutional law. They're accepted practices. Um, and one of the things you have to have, maybe in any system, and certainly in a system like ours with these potential rigidities resulting from a written constitution, you have to have kind of understandings about the way things are going to work. Um, so if, uh, here's, here's an analogy in labor relations for employees to say we are going to work to rule. That is an aggressive employment tactic designed to get employers to, to uh, submit to a demand of the unions. Um, uh, to say, you got, you, here are the rules, we're going to follow the rules. We're not going to give you a single break um, uh, in the rules. That's, you know, that's not normal life. That's a tactic. If, if our political actors start working to rule, that is to say, start taking advantage of every little thing that the Constitution allows them to do, um, the system could be in trouble. And I think we've seen a little bit of that. The gerrymandering is an example of that. Um, uh, the, Const the Constitution says nothing about districting. You can interpret the Equal Protection Clause, the 15th Amendment, uh, in ways that limit gerrymandering. But it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to come up with standards. The courts have sort of Sometimes they flirted with it, but basically they backed off and said we can't come up with standards. And we really are counting on the self-restraint of politicians to say, you know, they're kind of rules of the game. We've got to play by the rules of the game. And I think it's not crazy to say in the last couple of decades uh, we've seen a breakdown of that. Um, and th these are rules that exist in a kind of constitutional shadow zone. The courts are not going to enforce them. Whether really in the Constitution is unclear, but people have kind of played along with them, maybe because they think, you know, if we don't play along with them when our time comes, when we're vulnerable to this kind of tactic, uh, we'll lose out too. Um, but if that erodes, then I think we have a problem. The recess appointment issue actually came out of something like that, um, where, uh, you know, the Constitution says that presidential appointments have to be made with advice and consent of the Senate. Um, uh, it is literally within the power of the Senate to refuse to confirm any appointment made by a president. They could just say, we're not going to confirm anybody. Secretary of State, Attorney General, forget it. You're not getting them. Um, they could do that. Uh, they don't. They don't. And in fact, quite the, quite the opposite. Um, but over time, Senates have gotten more and more aggressive about that. In return, presidents have been trying to use their powers. And I think we're seeing this, this kind of breakdown. And that, rather than the, in the realm of the kind of law that gets litigated, is where I would identify both the possibilities and the potential for trouble. Mr. Richard. If there's such an, a unanimous agreement that some of these things are absurd and they just don't mean what we actually think they mean, why not employ Article 5 rather than just having this great collective wink that it's not really what it says? Mm -hmm. um, well, there are two categories of things. There are things where uh, no reasonable person could say that it means what it seems to mean. Um, there are things where it still might be a little bit controversial. And I think what, you know, what our system has evolved to is we don't use the amendment process. It's very difficult to use it, and we want to make some of these changes in the absence of the kind of consensus that you'd need to produce an amendment. For example, at the time of Brown against Board of Education, you could not have gotten the constitutional amendment through. They would not have gotten three-quarters of the states. Uh, more than a quarter of the states practice segregation. You could not have gotten three-quarters of the states to go along with that. Um, now, you could. Um, uh, but I think because the amendment process is so difficult that we've evolved these other ways of doing things, and they've worked well for us. Uh, worked pretty well for us. Um, but that's the system. That's the system. 
Uh, the amendment process were easier, I, things would look different. I think, I think you'd see less of this kind of updating that kind of butts up against the text and more formal amendments. But that's not our system. Our system is one with an extraordinarily difficult amendment process. And so we've developed these workarounds, and that's now our system. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and to try to, uh, now, to try to sort of cut that off and go back to relying on the formal amendment process, I think both would not produce good outcomes and would be unfaithful to these ways of working things out that we've arrived at. Ma'am. The comma? Yeah. So I don't think anyone would go along with that. But then where do we draw the line? Um, where would you suggest it be drawn? How can we define that standard between that example and then reading the right to get an abortion into various amendments in the Bill of Rights for the ninth or whatever the, you know, where would you draw the line? That's, I mean, the, the question, the, the question, sorry, so I, here, here's, here's, how I would, here's, here's how I would put the, the question. Um, if we're willing to kind of interpret our way around these various problems, why don't we just interpret our way around anything we're unhappy with? Uh, for example, and here's a, a fairly dramatic example, the Supreme Court has said this rule that in designing state legislatures and other government bodies at the state and local level, the rule's one person, one vote. Everyone has to, everyone's vote has to be about equal. You have to have districts of equal population. The Senate, of course, is a flagrant violation of that rule. Uh, so why hasn't the Supreme Court said the Senate is unconstitutional? It's a violation of one person, one vote. Um, uh, well, the Senate is actually very clearly written right into the Constitution, and that's the answer that you would be given. No, no, it says two senators per state. It even says that you can't amend that without the state's consent. It's a, uh, something that even the amendment process uh, can't deal with uh, by itself. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it also says Congress, and it also says uh, persons has papers it affects, and also says the other stuff. So why don't we interpret our way out of the Senate? That's the puzzle, um, and it is a puzzle. Um, I, I don't, I, here's my, I, th here, I think two things. I think number one, it's a puzzle. I don't think there's an obvious answer. I think it is our practice that there are some, that you cannot just blow off the text. You have to have some explanation of why what you're doing is consistent with the text. And all these examples I gave, there is some explanation. People don't just say, uh, oh, I mean, you know, forget it, that provision's obsolete. Um, they say, they squeeze it in. Um, why do we do that? Here's why I think we do that, and it actually ties in with my answer to Mr. Richer. Um, it is actually very handy, handy understates it, very important um, on some issues to have an answer and to have it written down and right there for everybody to see on some issues. And it matters a lot less that what the answer is than that we have an answer. Um, the famous passage in the opinion of Justice Brandeis is for some things, it's more important that it be settled than that it be settled right. Um, and there are things like that. Uh, and the written constitution can do that. It can give you answers to certain things where what exactly the answer is, you know, you could argue within a big range, but, but it's really good to have an answer. The example I mentioned at the beginning, the date the president leaves office, there's, there's a great example of that. It is really important to have a date and time when one president gives way to the next president. Uh, you know, 12 o'clock noon on January 20th. That's when a presidential term ends. Um, 
Uh, imagine if instead we kind of mushed it around and said, yeah, well, they said that at a time before modern communications and, you know, all kinds of threats to national security, and some presidents should leave earlier and some should leave later. So the president should leave office at a reasonable time after the election in which he's voted out. Chaos, right? That would, that would not be good. Um, and a written constitution can do that kind of thing for you. People say, no, no, it's in the constitution. You leave office then. Uh, if we started getting in the practice of not doing these rewritings, of saying, um, ah, who cares about that, that provision? It's obsolete. We couldn't take advantage of that, or at least our ability to take advantage of that would be weakened. And if we started saying, oh, who cares? The Fourth Amendment is this person, that's papers, like, so what? Uh, uh, yeah, the Equal Protection Clause doesn't apply to the federal government. Ah, you know, who cares? We don't, we, don't, we don't need a clause to apply to the Equal Protection Clause to the federal government. You know, you could imagine a slippery slope in which people would say, well, yeah, it says January 20th, but, you know, let's make an exception. Um, and the Constitution is a barrier against that, and that's important. So the answer to the question about when should we do it, I say we should, you know, in, in doing these workarounds, these sort of subtle rewritings or, or, or unadmitted rewritings of the text, what we have to do is take care not to undermine the ability of the text to settle these things that really need to be settled one way or another, and that would be my guidepost. And it's a wifty guidepost. It's not very clear. Um, but actually, I think that's what, that's what we've arrived at, because there is a very clear norm that you do not declare a provision of the Constitution obsolete, you do not ignore it, you do not blow it off, you find a textual home for everything. Uh, that is a norm, and I, this is the way I would explain that, uh, uh, that, that norm. I, and it's, it's a little unsatisfactory, but I, I, the best I can do. Sir. Uh, so a lot of the, it seems like uh, all the examples that you showed, there was kind of a sense that, okay, yeah, this is pretty clearly how we want to slash ought to read the, the Constitution, even though the words maybe aren't getting us there super well. And I, I guess I'm wondering uh, maybe why you think that most of these cases come out that way, or if there are cases where it's like, well, you know, maybe you feel like we've done this in error. Uh, you know, the question being, this is kind of an easier way than the amendment process to move a baseline, and then 50 years later it's easy to say, oh yeah, of course we want paper money because our baseline has sort of been moved. Are there anywhere where it could be reasonable to have said at the time, like, no, this is a bad idea, and, and maybe you know, history could have gone another way, but, but now we just think, oh, of course we want to do it this way. That, just, that would make me a little suspicious of being able to play this a little bit loose, as, as mm -hmm. has kind of been demonstrated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it is certainly right that an evolutionary system of the kind that I think we actually have is path-dependent. Um, and there could be turns that are taken. They didn't have to be taken. There was a fortuity of who happened to be on the Supreme Court circumstance in the country. And then, as you say, we go down that path, and we're committed to that path. And we could easily have been on a different path, and the other path might have been better. Uh, that is true. Um, I think that is an unavoidable feature of a system that relies on evolution and precedent, which is what I think our system relies on. Now, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative you're gesturing at, and it is an alternative that, that some people would embrace, is that what, what I would regard, without being pejorative about it, as a kind of fundamentalism. Because what a common move in attacking evolutionary systems is to say, let's go back to first principles. Everything that's grown up is corrupt. We need to go back to, to the foundations, to the founders, to, what, to where we came from, and get back in touch with our first principles and get rid of all this stuff that's accumulated. Um, and that is a common move among reformers. Uh, that's, the, you know, that, that's the Protestant Reformation uh, uh, did that. And I think that is the impulse between, uh, be, behind a lot of resort to the text, 
is to try to, it's a, it's a place to stand when you're attacking the tradition. Now here's the problem. You can't. You can't get back to the first principles. Too much has changed. Um, and if you try to get back to the first principles, inevitably you're going to be getting back to something you're reading into the first principles consciously or not. Um, uh, because you can't get back to James Madison. James Madison lived in two different a world, so you're going to get back to your version of James Madison. Uh, and uh, if the choice is between path dependence and that, I would choose the path dependence. Not because path dependence is unproblematic, but because the risk of handing over the power to, to, to do the fundamentalist thing, to say, I know what the first principles were. I, a judge, know what the first principles were. I'm going to get us back in touch with that. That's the scary power. Um, following along in a path that maybe we shouldn't have taken is, you know, as they say in the trade, suboptimal, but, uh, but not as bad, I think, as that. That would, that would be my pitch, anyway. Yes, sir? Well, you present a really compelling case for why it's necessary and indeed good to read some interpretation. I guess I'm just wondering why originalism is so popular that it seems so obvious uh, I think it's I think it's tied into the answer I just gave. I think um, well, there are a couple things going on. Um, uh, there is an appeal to feeling that you're part of an ongoing project. It's a human tendency, a human desire, and it's there's nothing wrong with it. And anyway, we're stuck with it be, being human. Um, that it's nice to feel you are not you know not in Burke's phrase the flies of a summer. That you have some continuity with people who went before you, people who came later. That's an important thing to feel. And people want to feel they're part of a, an American, a lot of people want to feel they're part of an American tradition, the same way they might want to feel they're part of some other tradition, religious or ethnic or familial. Uh, and originalism appeals to that. You know, I'm, I'm not just standing here alone, I'm part of this ongoing uh, tradition. That's one reason uh, for the appeal. And I don't want to disparage that, I think that's fine. Um, uh, I, I don't think that should govern our interpretation of the Constitution because I think our interpretation of the Constitution ought to appeal to people who say, well, I don't, I don't want to be part of that tradition. I mean, I, I belong to a different tradition. Uh, uh, and, and I'm willing to stay here, and I'm willing to play by your rules, but don't tell me that I'm somehow bound by the mystic ties of memory to James Madison. I'm not. I'm bound by the mystic ties of memory to my ancestors in Central Europe. Uh, and the Constitution ought to speak to those people. Um, so that's why, why I think the originalist impulse is, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. I question is a way of interpreting the Constitution. I think the reason you see it crop up is tied into my answer to the last question, which is I think it is a move that reformers make. And in fact, if you look at people who've made originalist arguments in American constitutional law, we think of it today as conservative. It, it's not. In fact, the most influential originalist in American constitutional law was Justice Black, who was a liberal. Um, much more effective and influential just because of the composition of the court than today's conservative originalists. Uh, he was doing this fundamentalist move. He was unhappy with the tradition he had been handed. The tradition he had handed was a tradition in which the courts were interfering with economic regulation and in which the courts were upholding racial segregation. He hated both of those things, and so he said, let's go back to the framers. Um, now, it wasn't really the framers. It was really his conception of the framers, but that's the move he made. I think conservatives today don't like some of the ways in which the country and the law developed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so it's their turn. Uh, and that would predict that what you're going to see is an upsurge of liberal, quote-unquote, originalism today. And you do. You do. You'd see liberals attacking conservative law um, by saying things like, if the original under they actually say this, the original understanding properly understood supports a right to an abortion. 
I mean, I, I actually think Roe against Wade is probably correctly decided, but come on. Um, uh, but that's the move. That's the move you're going to see. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it is this cultural thing, which I think is understandable, and then the rhetorical thing, which I also get, but I think that is different from actually looking there to, as a source of law. Great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.